0: welcome back. It's good to see you again. Woo, there we are. That's working. Uh, I'd be grateful if you could turn with me to First Peter chapter one once again. Uh, we're not going to have time to look in detail at every verse of this letter. We are going to spend uh, time in uh, five sections of it. But um, one of the things I want to do today is just to skip through a few sections, uh, just very briefly, and that, that'll become obvious in a few minutes' time. I'm going to just, just, uh, especially so that. Um, Those of you who are keen to read it or to try and study it a bit more can do so. And you kind of know the sorts of things you're looking for. I want to highlight one particular thing this evening. So we'll um, read 1 Peter chapter 1, 13 to 21. And then we'll pray and spend a bit of time in this section together. So 1 Peter chapter 1 from verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded... with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Let's pray, shall we? Merciful God, we thank you again for the presence of your Spirit with us, that you don't leave us in the dark, but you have spoken in such a way that we may be conformed to Christ's likeness in accordance with your will and for his glory and for our good. And we pray that once again you'd be merciful to us, that you'd speak to us afresh, that your Spirit would breathe new life into these ancient words which he inspired, and that you'd uh, enliven our minds and give us attentiveness and wisdom and thoughtfulness and that right kind of self-scrutiny so we may examine ourselves and aspire by the grace of Christ to greater things. And we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Okay, I want to tell you another story, true story, taking you back to the year 1813 when America was at war with Britain. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the story concerns a man named David Farragut. David Farragut was an American. He was a naval... Uh, He was a sailor in the US Navy. The ship on which David Farragut served managed to capture a British vessel along with its crew. Maybe you can see where this is going. Mr Farragut was given command of the captured ship, so he transferred himself along with a team of men to the captured ship where he um, took the the British crew into custody. And he was given the job of taking this captured vessel and its crew back to the US, where they could be dealt with appropriately. I don't know what you do to captured sailors. Anyway, uh, they were to find out. But during the voyage home, fairly lengthy voyage, trouble broke out. And the captured British captain announced that he was going to go below and get his pistols. Now, in a gesture of respect for his rank and his position, David Farragut had allowed The British captain to keep possession of his pistols below the deck and the captured British captain announced he was going to go down and get them. David Farragut declared that if the British captain set foot on the deck with his pistols, he would be shot and thrown overboard. The British captain decided to stay below. The trouble subsided. The ship was returned safely to the US. The British crew were imprisoned and it all ended happily if you're American. There's something I've not told you about David Farragut, something you might be interested to hear about. At the time of these events, David Farragut was 12 years old. Quick show of hands. Anybody who's aged 12 or older? 12 or older? That'll be all of you then. So it could have been you. Now, How would you feel about that? middle of the North Atlantic, bunch of Brits on your ship, captain declaring that he intends to go below and get his firearms and you will see you in a couple of minutes. How do you feel about that? Excited? Would you feel ready for that kind of challenge? Would you have the maturity to deal with that kind of situation? Would you have the competence to know what to do? Would you, have, would you be willing to take responsibility for the lives of your men? Or would you just be completely overwhelmed with the prospect of what you had to deal with? Can't do it. Somebody else take responsibility. How would you feel about that? You see, if that's how you feel, then actually I've got some kind of good news for you, in a funny sort of way, backhandedly. Uh, That feeling of being slightly overwhelmed, that feeling of it's all too much, that feeling of I can't do it, that feeling of please somebody else take responsibility is exactly how the first readers of 1 Peter would have felt when they received this letter. Let me just um, show you why that would have been. They would have been quite shocked to hear. What Peter said to them. You remember last session I mentioned they would have been delighted when they first got the letter. Finally, we've heard from an apostle. Somebody's going to teach us something because we are, after all, completely clueless. And we don't really know what we're doing here. We know we're following Jesus and we remember some of the stuff that Peter said, but it's been a long time since we heard from anybody who knows anything. And they're isolated in these little churches in Western Turkey, out in the boonies in the middle of nowhere. They've grown, perhaps, slightly. Maybe they're not three or four Christians now. Maybe they're 10 or 11 Christians, but that brings problems with it because there's nothing like a new convert to throw into turmoil your nice, stable church, is there? Pastors are all like, yeah, no, nothing like that. And they're not persecuted, but they're fearing persecution. And they know that they're not really welcome in the social and the cultural sort of setting in which they've grown up. And they feel lonely, and they feel fragile, and they feel vulnerable. And here, the Apostle Peter, the great rock, on which Christ is going to build his church, writes his letter to them. And what 1 Peter doesn't say, sorry, what 1st Peter doesn't say, is, hey, don't worry. Relax. It's okay. Keep your head down. Hold on tight. It's all going to be fine. You do not find that kind of sentiment in this letter. What you find, I mean, wouldn't it be nice? It's like, you ever find yourself in that kind of situation where you just wish your mum would show up and make it all go away? Do you ever find yourself in that kind of situation? I'm talking about you, Joe Douglas. You say there's some disaster, some catastrophe happens which you've caused. I mean, Why did I think of Joe Douglas at that point? I can't imagine. And, and you just, like, you wish somebody else would come and fix it and, and um, well, there's nothing like that in First Peter. Instead, if you wanted a, a simple summary of the message of First Peter, it goes like this. You are, under God, you are the hope for the salvation of the world. Not somebody else, you. You're the only hope for the salvation of the world. God intends through you to have the gospel proclaimed. God intends through you to have the way of Christ lived out in the world. Jesus isn't in the world anymore. Jesus is enthroned in heaven and he's poured out his spirit upon the church and it's your job to live like him and be him to the world. It is only through you that sinners are going to be reconciled with their creator. It is only through you that the nations are going to be discipled and transformed. God is saving the world through the church. Nobody else is going to step onto the deck of the ship and tell the British captain what to do with his pistols and nobody else is going to fix the world. By the grace of God, but the church. Only you. How do you feel about that? Well, you're all 12 years old. It should be fine, shouldn't it? And if you notice, and this is just—I want to go through a few um, uh, texts in, in second, uh, First Peter just to give you a sense of where the book as a whole goes. And then, if you're reading it or you're talking about it with your friends, then, then this might help you just to get a sense of the flow of what Peter's saying. Look, for example, at chapter two, verse nine. We looked at this before. The, um, uh, the pronouns are emphatic in this uh, verse, which means they're kind of put at the front of the sentence to highlight that it's. Verse 9, but you, and not somebody else, are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you, specifically you people, may proclaim the excellences of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. Who's going to proclaim the gospel to the world? People like you. Nobody else. Verse 11, a couple of verses down. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. You are in a battle against sin. You're in a battle against the passions of the flesh and they're the passions of your flesh and you're in the battle and nobody else is going to fight it for you. Verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honourable so that when they speak against you as evildoers they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. How are people going to see the transforming grace of the Spirit? How are people who, who malign and slander the church as they do in 21st century America and 21st century Britain, how are they going to see that there's actually something different about what God does in people what than what they think and what they see and what they claim? It's only to the extent that they see your good deeds. It doesn't say, just chill out, guys, and relax, and they'll see somebody else's good deeds, and they'll come streaming into your church and ask you to baptise them, and you don't have to do any discipleship because somebody else will do it. It doesn't say that. Can you see? Again... Look, uh, chapter 2, verse 20, a bit further down. You've been persecuted for your faith? Well, you don't want to be surprised about that, do you? What credit... This is a really striking section, and we're not going to have time to look at it in detail, but it's a really forceful and shocking section of the letter from about verse uh, 18 down to the end of that chapter. Verse 20. What credit is it if when you sin and you're beaten for it, you endure? In other words, if you're just wicked and you get into trouble, too bad, and it doesn't do any credit to you, it doesn't do any credit to God. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. This, this is what you've been called to. Look at verse 21. To this you have been called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. It's really strange, isn't it? We, uh, we rightly emphasize the uniqueness of the work of Christ, correct? Yeah? Only Jesus can atone for the sins of the world. Only Jesus can give himself in such a way that sin is, a, is dealt with, that sin is atoned for. Only Christ can die for sinners. And yet it's striking the degree to which Peter sets Christ, forth Christ as an example, and not an example in his life, but an example in his death. Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. It's really strange as well. We, we, we think of persecution as it's a little bit, um, people laugh at me if they know I'm a Christian. Man, that's not, that's not persecution, okay? Persecution is having your fingernails ripped out, okay? Persecution is you wake up one Sunday morning, your pastor's not there anymore, and he's never seen again. That's persecution. Persecution isn't feeling a little bit embarrassed when you have to tell the guy at work that you believe in Jesus. That's not persecution. That's your, our, my feebleness. And that we're so used to having an easy life that when it gets slightly difficult, we like kind of cave in under the pressure. And that's not what these men and women were being prepared for. Peter was saying, "This, you are the ones in and through whom the Lord Jesus Christ is going to transform the world. That wonderful song that we were singing. You know, what, I forget the words of the refrain. Um, who can who can read that? Yeah, pray, shout loud, pray on. We're gaining ground. That was it. Like, well, how, we're gaining ground. Yes, yes. But don't get so hyper-Calvinist that you're afraid to say that we are called to gain ground. Of course, it is... Christ in you, the hope of glory. Of course it is God who works in you to will and to do according to his good pleasure, but it's God who works in you to will and to do according to his good pleasure. Can you see? Chapter 4, verse 12, got the same kind of thing. And this is, it's like, Peter is so kind of relaxed about it. <laughs> Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Like, that's normal. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And then always, just back a, a chapter or so, chapter 3, verse 15, always being ready to defend your faith, always being prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Can you start to see the, it's like the melodic line of First Peter. You could summarise it in this way. You are, by the grace of Christ, by the work of the Spirit, you are the hope for the world. Simple as that. And there's going to be a day when Pastor Booth and Pastor Neil and I are all dead. Who's going to pastor your church then? Hmm? Who's going to be elders then? Yeah? Who's going to be teaching the new Christians how to sort the family chaos out then? Hmm? Not me, not him, not them, you. Are the hope for the salvation of the world. And you can imagine these stunned congregations sitting up in the in Cappadocia, you know, all four of them, in their little Bible study, and they sort of head home and they sort of sit down in the daze and like... You know, I'm really not sure I'm ready for this. You know, there's, uh, there are giants out there and I've only got five smooth stones from the brook and a sling. What am I supposed to do? And then they're like, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. All you've got is five smooth stones from the, from the stream and, and a little sling and there's a big giant. and yeah. It's what it, it's what it means to be the people of the living God. And it's it, re- interesting. You, you get right to the end. Right at the end of the letter, almost the final words, in, in chapter 5, verse 12, not quite the final, um, the final uh, verse, but uh, Peter uh, has this like, little final exhortation. By Sylvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring, and it's very intriguing what he st- says now, that this is the true grace of God, stand firm in it. It's like he wants to say, guys, there's no other option. It's not like, this isn't the letter that I send to all the keen Christians, but it's like the optional thing, like summer camp. Okay? Like, if you're really keen, you can come on summer camp. You don't have to. You can just play video games. No, no. First Peter is like compulsory for everybody, like summer camp ought to be. Because okay? it's such fun. Except that you're looking so completely shocked, which is a jolly good thing, because when you start to realise the magnitude of the task that you need to grow into... Then, then, I pray, we will be praying, your counsellors will be praying that you start to pray and you start to live and you start to step on the gas and grow into the men and the women that Christ is calling you to be. Don't miss this opportunity. So, back to the passage we're looking at, chapter 1, all those... Times in the the letter where um, uh, Peter is saying, like, you're the hope for the world, you should be ready to face persecution, you need to be ready to speak up for Christ. Actually, the first time that the shot really hits home is in chapter 1, verse 13. And that's why I wanted to preach from this little section. Um, This is the bit where it says, verse 13, therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's like, prepare your minds for action. Get ready. And so what I want to do, there's basically the the structure of this passage. It's kind of simple. Verse 13 is like a a central imperative, a central instruction. I want to look at that for a few minutes. And then there are two images in the rest of the passage which come from different Old Testament books, different Old Testament strands of Old Testament teaching. Uh, One is about holiness from the book of Leviticus. One is about Passover from the book of Exodus. We'll spend a few minutes on each of them. So you see where we're going? Verse 13, this central instruction, a couple of images. Holiness, Leviticus. Passover, Exodus, with me? Excellent, right. Let's take a look first at this central instruction. Verse 13, grab your Bibles, look again. Therefore, here goes everybody, you know who you are now, you're the people of the Father, Son, Spirit, therefore here's what you've got to do, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that is being brought or will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, notice um, a couple of things about this. Firstly, there's a kind of build-up to it, isn't there? Um... Preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, bam. Have you ever, anybody play in an orchestra? Anybody played in an orchestra? Music? Yeah, and, and you, yeah. And you know you have like timpani? And sometimes you get the kind of timpani, like rumbling of the drums, and then you get a massive clash of cymbals. Yeah, wonderful, big sound. The two participles, preparing and being sober-minded, they're like the timpani, and then it's smash, with set your hope fully on the grace that is being revealed to you. Now, those two preparatory bits, Notice they're both about the mind. Isn't that intriguing? Look carefully. Preparing your minds for action. Literally, it's girding up the loins of your mind. We'll come back to that in a few minutes' time. But it's getting your mind ready to do something. Thinking straight. And then being sober-minded. Obviously, it's a contrast with being drunken-minded and having like uh, not being able to focus on anything, not being able to walk in a straight line, not being able to think straight. In other words, it's thinking clearly, Focus on the task you've got to do. The first and most important thing that you need to do in order to start growing in the kind of direction and at the kind of pace that we need to grow to be faithful, mature Christians is to start to think clearly about the task at hand. Illustration. Anybody play baseball? Of course you all play baseball, right. Now I don't play baseball. I play cricket, which is a bit like baseball except the ball is harder and you're not allowed to wear gloves when you catch it. But I'm told that baseball is quite quite difficult as well sometimes, you know, for you Americans. And anyway, so so you're standing there with anybody wanna have a game afterwards, I'm very happy to. So you're standing there with a the bat, okay? I'm guessing that what you're not doing is standing there with a the bat and going. Right? That would be cricket. What that that would be <laughs> That would not be cricket, my friend. That would not be cricket. You don't in cricket you get your head taken off. See see if you do that, if you have your mind on the skies and the clouds and you're watching, you're scratching your head, you're going to get a big bruise right about here, yeah? Because if you're going to do anything that's demanding, you need to think clearly about it, yeah? Think clearly. You're not gazing around, letting your mind wander. And so, you know, I mentioned um, last talk, your great theologian, Jonathan Edwards. He wasn't much older than you when he wrote down his list of resolutions. Have you come across Jonathan Edwards' resolutions? It's awesome. Go and read Jonathan Edwards' resolutions. You should do a summer sanctus on Jonathan Edwards' resolutions. Man, talk about, well, sober-minded, resolved, and <laughs> resolved again. It's like, I don't know, 56. Well, he wrote like a couple of dozen to begin with, and he kept adding to them because he realized that you can't drift into godliness. Nobody ever accidentally became holy. It's like, how did that ever happen? No, think and focus and decide what are the things that I need to do to sort out the sinful, chaotic, immature, childish, dissipated edges of my life and pray and talk to somebody and then think. Get your head clear about what you're trying to be and what you want God to make you into. There's um, the main instruction then, second half of the verse... Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There is a translation issue here. I don't want to do a lot of detail on this, but um, the way it's normally translated, at least in my Bible, it gives the sense that this grace will be brought to you at some future point. Can you see that? I don't know how it's translated in your Bibles. If you've got an English Standard Version, it says, the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's almost certainly not what is meant. There is no future sense to any of the verbs here. It's a present verb. And what it actually means, therefore, is not set your hope fully on something that will be revealed in the future. That's Romans 8, yeah? The the glory that will be revealed to us. And it's a biblical sentiment to set your hope on the day of resurrection when Jesus returns. That's true. It's a good thing to do. But what Peter is doing is saying, no, set your hope fully on that which has already been been revealed to you by Christ Does that make sense? You, in other words you have something now you have something now in Christ and it is specifically actually it is him on which we are to set our hope so put these things together it's like let's think clearly about the task and you look at the task and you, you feel like you felt when I told you that David Farragut was twelve And then what you do, having assessed the task and been totally overwhelmed by it, you think, I can't do this. And then what you do is stop being a secular psychologist and trying to G yourself up, and you set your hope fully on the man next to you, the Lord Jesus Christ who has been revealed to you. Yes? Make sense? This is not a self-improvement talk. This is a Christ transforms your life talk. So, you see the mountain... Illustration again. Um, the highest mountain in Britain is this puny little thing called Ben Nevis. It's about 1,000 metres high. It's pretty scary, actually. Um, the top of it looks a bit like the surface of the moon, you know, kind of big rocky boulders everywhere. And I climbed it with the kids and with Nicole um, uh, a few um, months ago, a year or so ago. Now, here's the thing. Um, at the bottom, if you've never climbed Ben Nevis, it's really easy to find your way. Guess why? Right? Because half of Scotland is climbing Ben Nevis. If it's a sunny day, you don't need a map you can just set your hope fully on the person who's walking along next to you because they'll know the way. Yeah? And as long as you're willing to walk, as long as you're willing to have that agonising kind of, you know, when you think your thighs just can't do any more of this, you know, as long as you're willing to have that, you're going to be fine. Because this guy next to you who's been up and down the mountain 50 times will show you the way. That is the demeanour with which we are to approach the Christian life. You have a mountain to climb and you have no idea... Trust me, you have no idea what is going to face you. And you are to be totally blown away by the scale of the task you have before you. Don't dissipate away your teenage years. And having been totally overwhelmed by that, set your hope fully on the man Jesus Christ who walks alongside you and start walking. Yes? That's what Peter is calling his um, brothers and sisters to do. So. It really is just a question of... You, you can think of this in lots of different ways. Like, what, what are the particular things that you think you need to change because they're sinful? What are the particular things that you think you could seek to accomplish because this is a way in which God has gifted you? And you, the challenge for you is to think just personally about yourself and not get proud and arrogant about it, But to think, if if this is what I think it might be good for me to do, then seek it. Seek it. Seek first the kingdom of God. But, But make that the thing that you wake up in the morning and you think, I want today to be a better day in relation to dealing with this sin than yesterday was. Yeah? And you get lots of examples of this. Every pastor in this room has had conversations which go a little bit like this. You're talking to somebody and they're lamenting the fact they don't read the Bible very much. Oh, I just wish I read the Bible a little bit more. Have you ever had these conversations? And, and the first thing you ask them is say, well, okay, uh, let's think about this. So w- when do you read the Bible? So oh, I don't really have a set time. So, okay. Um, so what's, what's the Bible reading plan do you follow? And So, well, I don't really have a plan. It's like, okay, just a second. You, you don't have a plan. You don't have a time. And you're telling me that you really wish you read the Bible more. Well, I don't really think you do wish you read the Bible more. If you really, if you really had been clear-minded about this, then you'd be able to tell me the time and you'd be able to tell me the plan. Yeah. And it's, I had the conversation exactly like this. It was about prayer. I was about um, 21 years old. I had no excuse. Like David Farragut was, well, so much younger than me. It's embarrassing. And I was, I was living in Japan. It was an interesting time. Quite a testing time. I had to go an hour and three quarters to get to church. Met a guy there called Jeremy at church, and we got to know each other quite well because we were the only Brits in the congregation. And I had this interesting conversation with him one day when um, I realised that he was a lot more prayerful than me. And I said, you know what, I, 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 really, need to, I really need to pray more. I'm, I'm not really sure I pray very consistently. He said, so when do you pray? And I said, don't, I don't really have a time. He just looked at me and like laughed. like, well, there's your answer. Can you see? Decide. Nobody ever drifted into godliness. Nobody ever became a godly man or a godly woman by accident. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. Okay, so that's verse 13. Now, a bit of time on verse, on, on the next few verses just to highlight these two themes which emerge from it. I said, remember, one is holiness. It's a theme which emerges from the book of Leviticus. We'll look at that first. Here goes, verse 14. Here goes. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But... As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. We talked about holiness last time, didn't we? Holiness has to do with moral purity. Holiness has to do with being dedicated and committed to a particular task. And what these verses do is just to flesh that out a little more. Let's look at it, verse 14. It's all building up, by the way, to verse 16, which is a quote from Leviticus. It's, be holy for I am holy. You want to be like God because that's what God is like. Verse 14 starts us off, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Now, this is tremendously helpful, tremendously useful for thinking about the moral purity aspect of holiness. Remember I was saying before, uh, holiness has an aspect which is to do with you have a job to do. But you cannot do the work that God calls you to do in the world without purity. You are worse than useless without moral purity. So now let's look at verse 14 and see what it adds to this picture. As obedient children, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. You have to imagine people who are not quite like you. People who haven't been blessed with the kind of Christian upbringing that most of you will have been blessed with, who lived lives before they were Christians, which Peter can describe as your former ignorance. Now, actually, I mean, I'm making an assumption here, there may be people here, yeah, maybe you yourself were converted at a, um, comparatively recently, um, within you know, the time you can remember, maybe your parents became Christians quite recently, maybe you can remember ways that you used to live, or ways that your parents used to live, which count as your former ignorance. And in that case, what Peter is saying is that that's something you need to leave behind. But for many of us, many of you, actually not for me so much, but for many of you, the the passions or the temptations that you face don't so much come from your past, but they come more from the world around you. Does that make sense? You're surrounded by temptations. You're surrounded by... um, kind of open invitations to sin with a big sign on it that says, jump right in here. And the danger is, and look carefully at the language that Peter uses, do not be conformed. Do not be conformed. Do you see what the danger is? To be conformed to something. What conformed means to be shaped by whatever you're surrounded by. You know, um, I I discovered another difference between American English and English English not long ago. Um, What's a jelly in American English? Right. Jelly is stuff you spread on bread, yeah right okay so what's the American word for a kind of dessert that you get when you 've got a liquid stuff and you pour it into a mold what 's that jello. Jello. jello jello I learned something right now here's the problem lots of Christians are like jello right all floppy and wobbly, and they take the shape of whatever you pour them into. Can you see how that works so you you surround yourself with a bunch of Non-Christian influences, and you just take the shape in kind of floppy, indecisive way of whatever it is you're surrounded by. Lots of Christians are like Jello. Yeah, don't be conformed. Don't be like this kind of squishy, easily manipulated baby Christian who can so easily be pushed around by the world around you. In fact, though, um, Peter highlights that there is another source of these temptations which is slightly closer to home. Look more closely again. Verse 14. Notice he doesn't say do not be conformed to the passions of the world around you. He says do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Whose passions? Your passions. Whose ignorance? Your ignorance. And this is a very useful and actually quite humbling lesson to learn. It is very easy when we face temptations as Christians to blame the temptations. Does that make sense? You know, you go to the cinema, okay, and you just went to do, like, you wanted to see a film, but and you weren't expecting the semi-pornographic adverts for half an hour before the actual feature begins, right? And it's like, oh, all these temptations are tempting me. No, no, your passions. Your passions. Yeah. You... you You find yourself in a bunch of people in this kind of gossip and slander and lies and this kind of thing and it's like, oh, all these temptations. No, no, your passions, your ignorance, your temptations. You see what Peter's doing. He's highlighting again, look, take responsibility for the actions you get involved in. Take responsibility for who you want to be. Don't get yourself into that position where you'll blame everybody and everything apart from yourself for the things that you end up becoming. Turn to the Lord, seek his help, and look to the strength he gives you to change the person you are. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. It's interesting how Jesus talks about this, doesn't he? Where does Jesus say that sinful passions come from? Mark 7, from within, from the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within. You talk. The way some of us talk, some of the time, you think, all these evil things come from without, and they defile a person. Jesus is like, no, no, all these evil things come from right in there, and they defile a person. It was the Pharisees who thought all the wickedness came from outside, so that if they cut themselves off from the world, then they could be holy. There's a temptation for Christian-educated kids. If only I can cut myself off from this wicked and sinful world, then i will be perfect. No! Then you'll be a recluse, a hermit. And do you remember, the, there's a... Do uh, you ever read the Babylon Bee? It's kind of satirical Christian. Oh, it's hilarious. Satirical Christian online thing, okay. and So every article is a spoof. And one article was... Um, uh, It was a spoof advertisement for the family Christian bubble, TM. You you can see where this is going, right? And so you buy this bubble, you kind of put your children inside it, and it's impervious to all secular influences. So what you do, you get your little baby and you pop pop it inside the family Christian bubble, TM, and then it's perfectly safe from all this ungodliness, except Jesus says, no, no, the sinfulness resides in the heart of the child. The sinfulness resides in the heart of the 12-year-old. And only, only by what Peter describes as do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance can it be driven out. Man, we've got some praying to do, haven't we? Okay, so holiness, we are called to imitate God. Second, briefly, I want to read verse 17 to the end of that little section where one of there's lots of stuff going on in those verses, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on verse 17, but um, Peter highlights the imagery of the Passover. You know about the Passover, Israel's escape from Egypt in the days of Moses. Let me read these verses, and then you'll see the allusions in verses 18 and 19. I'll read it, and then we'll say a word about it. Verse 17, If you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear, Throughout the time of your exile, knowing that, here goes the allusions to the Passover, ready? Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was made manifest in the last times for your sake who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Okay, look at verse 18 and 19. You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers not with silver and gold and stuff like that but with the blood of Christ a lamb without blemish and defect. Can you see all the hints of the Passover? Remember what happened? You've got the people of Israel, they're enslaved, they're in bondage, they're in a place that they hate to be surrounded by idolatry and God says, I'm going to set you free and he, he sets them free by tearing them out of the hands of the tyrant king Pharaoh with a series of ten devastating plagues. And the first nine plagues, there, there are hints that the Israelites are spared from the worst of them, or sometimes spared all, from all of particular plagues. But the tenth plague is different. In order for the Israelites to be spared from the tenth plague, there's only one way to escape, and it is by sacrificing a lamb and daubing its blood over the doorposts and the lintels of your house. The way to be saved from the tenth plague, the plague of death, the plague on the firstborn, is through ransom, by sacrifice, to pay with a life so that the life of the firstborn isn't taken away. So you imagine you know, little Johnny, age 12, say, oldest son, Daddy, have you done the lamb yet? Uh, no, don't worry, I'll do it later. Yeah, no, he's, he's pretty nervous come 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock. And the angel of death passes through, and the angel of death will pass over all the houses in which the blood of a lamb has been spilt. And then the people are free to head out into the wilderness, through the Red Sea, to worship God. Now, just as the people of Israel were ransomed by the blood of a lamb, so the Church of Christ has been ransomed by the blood of Christ. Now, why on earth would Peter mention this here? Why is it important for us to have that Passover image in our mind? Here, Well, part of the answer lies in the fact that verse 13, prepare your minds for action, is literally, gird up the loins of your mind. It's like, it's got the image of tie your belt on and pull the trousers up and all that kind of thing. I mean, gird up your loins. I don't want to mime this too, in too much detail. But it's get ready to go somewhere and it's a Passover illusion, okay? So gird up the loins of your minds because you're going somewhere. That's part of the reason. But part of the reason is, you're leaving something behind. Get out of Egypt. Why would you want to go back there? You've, you've been rescued, ransomed, by the blood of a man who loves you. You've been, your eyes have been fixed on a life of freedom and hope and joy And now you can leave this idolatry behind. Now you can leave that wickedness behind. Now you can leave that sinful world behind. Jesus did not die on a cross so that you could stay the same. Jesus died so that you can change. And so, remember David Farragut, it's time to raise your expectations of yourself. I'm only 12 years old. Right. And remember Jesus Christ. It is time to so pray and so live and so strive that you start to take those big steps forward that you need to take to become the man, to become the woman that you know really you want to be. Okay? Let's pray, shall we? Merciful God, we thank you that your spirit is and has been at work in us. I thank you for these young people. Uh, Thank you for their love for Christ. Uh, We pray that you would stir all of us up to a clear-headed and impassioned zeal for Christ's service. That we would love him and be so clear-headedly committed to him that all our lives would be transformed wonderfully in the days and months and years to come. Don't leave us as we are, Lord Jesus. We don't want to stay like this. We're sick of being like this. We're too baby-like. And we want to grow up to be conformed to the true man, the true image of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen.